Good evening, guys. Uh, welcome uh, to all of you who are with us tonight online as well. Uh, let's open up our Bibles this evening. Let's get into our study in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, uh, verse 41. We'll be looking at the uh, end of chapter uh, 6 here this evening, verses 41 through 71. And uh, I would say this, that uh, about the previous section in particular, that despite the fact that, that Jesus uh, performed many miracles and fed this group of Gentiles that we're going to see here in this section tonight. He, we saw last time how he, how, uh, well, the time before, how uh, he fed them uh, in Galilee and then they still didn't believe um, when he taught them that he was, he fed them with bread, but then he taught them that he was the true bread come down from heaven. And despite that teaching and despite the miracle that Jesus did, um, they still didn't believe. Uh, and instead, we're going to see that they complained uh, about him. And even some of his closer followers were offended and walked away. And so then he asked the 12 disciples uh, if they also wanted to leave. And their, re their response was, where would we go? And so the question we have to ask ourselves, and this is important for believers, um, we need to evaluate this. Where are we? Are we like many in the crowd or are we like the 12 or, well, at least uh, 11 of the 12? Um, there's a big difference in terms of where we're at in relationship to Jesus. So we need to, to look at that here this evening. We'll see uh, here how many Jews uh, reject Jesus and then even how many disciples um, walk away. Chapter 6, verse 41 says this, Then the Jews complain, complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. So it was this word of Jesus that 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 caused them to begin to complain about him. That when Jesus said, I am the bread come down from heaven. Now, that word there complains an interesting one. It's, it, it means to complain, but it's also a word that was used um, for the sound that a, a, a dove makes, the cooing of a, a, a dove. This is the, the word that was used for that. And, and um, I don't know about you, but it's kind of an annoying sound. Uh, and and um, I think that that's uh, for good reason, because uh, complaints, uh, while unfortunately they're not as annoying to us as they should be, uh, they are, uh, particularly as they relate to God, uh, a problem before God. And so the idea here is a murmuring, that, that, that murmuring under their breath, you know, to one another, but not to Jesus uh, complaining. And their problem was with his claim of divine origin. When he said that he was the, the bread come down from heaven, the issue was the divine nature uh, and origin within that idea. That's what they, they didn't like. In verse 42, they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, who's whose father and mother we know. How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? So again, as I said, the, the issue is not so much that he said he was, you know, some sort of uh, bread uh, in a spiritual sense, but that his origin was in heaven. And they said, we, you know, we, we know him. Um, you know, we, we know his family. He's the son of Joseph. We know his father uh, and his mother. So they reasoned. They knew his parents and, and they knew his family. But, you know, they didn't really know his father. They knew Joseph, but they didn't know Jesus' father, who is the heavenly father. And so it's interesting to me, though, all of that aside, because that when you think about God coming down from heaven, and, and that was what Jesus was saying, and obviously, as I said, that's what they had an issue with. So if God were to come, how would they have expected him to come? You, you, you know what I mean? Like, so in other words, 
We know his father, we, you know, we know his mother, his family, so he can't have come from heaven because whether they had, you know, put those ideas uh, down on paper or on uh, a scroll, uh, you know, uh, they obviously had an idea that it wouldn't be how Jesus came. So their issue was with how God came down as that bread from heaven. They didn't like how God did it, and so they, they reasoned because, you know, they, they had other ideas, even if they hadn't bothered to actually solidify those ideas, that, that God surely wouldn't come in that way. And so that was their issue uh, with Jesus, at least in this regard. And so Jesus answered them, verse 43, and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. So he knew what they were saying. And, you know, you, people, a lot of people murmur against God. And, and, and you can't murmur against God without God hearing. And so Jesus heard them. And he knew exactly, not, he didn't just hear the murmuring, but he knew the substance of the murmuring. And he says, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus goes from murmuring to really the subject of believers and unbelievers. Because the people that were murmuring about him weren't believers. You, you can't be a believer in God and then be murmuring and complaining uh, against and about God. So this was really an issue of, of believers and unbelievers. And the reality was that they couldn't believe, no one, no one was a believer or is a believer or can be a believer uh, unless the Father drew them, unless the Father was drawing them. And so what we discover is, is that our faith in Christ begins with the Father. If we have faith in Christ, it began with the Father. So before everything else, you say, well, I placed my faith in Christ. Yes, you did. You know, and, and uh, I heard the word of God and, and I believed. Yes, you did. But the very first part of all of that was the Father. It was all initiated by God. So you and I, we would have no faith today except that it was a gift of God, and that whole relationship with God began by Him drawing us. I shared with you before, I, I have a problem with this idea of seeker, because uh, seeker-sensitive and, and, and going after those that are seeking, because really there is no such thing as a as a, a person that is seeking, but really it is someone who is being drawn. Because we're in our natural state before God intervenes in our lives, we're not seeking Him. We're not looking for Him. But then in His divine mercy and grace, He begins to draw us to Himself. And so then that, that process begins. And so it's important not to water this down to understand that it has nothing to do with us. That it wasn't because we were looking that we came to Christ. It wasn't because, you know, one day we, we woke up, although it may seem like that. It wasn't because one day we woke up and thought, I need God. What we didn't see in that process, but we need to understand, was that it was God pulling us. It was God doing a work by His Spirit in our hearts and the Father drawing us to Himself. So... All of this, all of our relationship with God was initiated by God. And so you just step back and you say, wow, number one, thank you, Lord, because I shouldn't be here. If it was left up to me, I wouldn't be here. And so, so thank you, Lord. And boy, am I blessed because there are so many people in the world who don't have that. And yet I have what so many people don't have. There are, of course, other parts of the process. And, and we need to respond. And there is practically how we respond. And the Bible teaches that too. But it all begins with God. And in verse 45, 
Jesus says, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So the reason these people were complaining is, number one, the Father wasn't necessarily drawing them, you know, or that they weren't being taught by God or that they weren't responding uh, to that. But it begins with, with uh, here, this issue of salvation. You know, they were complaining. They weren't saved. And so Jesus goes back to the beginning and the heart of all of that. Now, the question, he, he says something interesting here. He actually quotes from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. But the question is, how does God draw people? Well, as I said, there, there are a few different ways he's working by his spirit, but, but ultimately it comes back to the word of God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, we're told that, that uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, so God is drawing people to a place where they will hear his word and where as they hear his word, they will receive that, that gift of faith that comes by hearing uh, the word of God. We see uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that faith is a gift. So God gives us all of these gifts. He draws us and he gives us his, his word and then he gives us the gift of faith. And, he, and, and then we're taught uh, by him, as Jesus says, and he as I said, he's quoting from Isaiah 54, 13. So his point is, is if these people were drawn and if these people were taught by God from his word, then they would respond and they would believe, but they did not. Um, so, you know, as I said, there, there are those places in the scripture where we see the sovereignty of God and we've got to be faithful to that. And there's also those places where we see the responsibility of men. And here we see the sovereignty of God in the situation quite clearly. And Jesus goes on in verse 46. He says, now, because he, he was talking to them, and they shall all be taught by God. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So this idea of being taught by God didn't mean that, you know, somehow... They would see the Father. Um, he says, only the Son has seen, the idea is only the Son has seen the Father in his fullness. In the Old Testament, we see men got glimpses of God, perhaps most famously Moses, as God tucked him into the rock as he passed by, and he saw the glory of the Lord as, as he passed by him, but he, he couldn't see God face to face and live. No one can see the Father and, and, and survive that. So the only one who has seen him face to face is the Son, and, and he has declared him to us, the Scripture says, elsewhere. And so Jesus says, verse 47, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So he's been building to this. People are murmuring and complaining. They're, you know, they're e either the Father isn't drawing them or more likely they're not responding to that. And uh, that other part of the equation there, they're not receiving uh, God's word and, and the gift of faith and believing because we know that God is not willing that any should perish. So it's not like God says, no, you know, uh, no, you know, the, those people shouldn't be saved. That's not the idea here. Um, but we see here that he confirms what's at stake. And what's at stake is eternal life. That's what the whole point of this conversation is. And he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they're dead. So if you go back to the earlier part of the conversation, which we saw last time, Jesus fed more than 5,000 people in the wilderness. But they kind of diminished that, as if you can diminish that miracle. But they tried to diminish that miracle with this idea that God... Uh, well, Moses incorrectly, they attributed incorrectly to Moses having fed them for 40 years in the wilderness uh, with manna. 
Jesus set them straight in that section. No, it was God who fed you for 40 years. Moses was the vessel, but God who fed you for 40 years uh, there in the wilderness. But they were implying that that this was greater. This was back in verse 31. They were implying that that was greater than what Jesus did. So it's interesting that they didn't deny that Jesus performed a miracle. They, they, and this is kind of a, a really hard heart, they just tried to diminish the miracle. It's rather illogical if you think about it. And Jesus points out, he says, your fathers ate the manna and they're dead. So what he's saying is, is that the manna was temporal. But he's just got through telling us that what he was offering was everlasting, was eternal life. So not only are these um, things not comparative, and not only is what they thought greater not actually greater, it was important because it pointed to Jesus, but it wasn't greater, it was temporal. They're dead, and what Jesus was offering was eternal life. And he says this in verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So what Jesus is saying here is is that there was a sense in which they could eat his flesh and drink his blood uh, and live, hear this, by believing through, through faith, this was pointing to their faith. This was uh, symbolic of their faith and their trust in Him. The problem is, is that as they hear this, eat, what, eat, what does He mean? Eat His flesh, drink His blood. The problem is, is that they get stuck in their head and they cannot get beyond the physical to see anything spiritual. Some people can't see anything God is showing them because um, they're stuck in the natural. And Jesus is trying to show them spiritual things. He's talking about spiritual things. Jesus is trying to show them what, that what he's talking about, in fact, is not physical. That's the contrast he's making between the, uh, himself and the manna. That, that bread that was temporal and, and the bread that is spiritual. And so that's the, the whole point of what, he, what he's talking about is, is it's not physical, it, it's spiritual. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with me, this brings up the very uh, important subject of uh, the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now, Jesus, I want to point one thing out first of all. Jesus took bread. Jesus is not the bread. Jesus took bread. He's alive when he did this the first time. And so he took bread, verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if I'm here and I stand before you 
and I take some bread and I break it and I, I say, here, take, eat, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me, going forward, you know, do it in remembrance of me. Do you suppose, are you going to naturally think that somehow, you know, I gave you a piece of my back maybe or something like that? My leg? No, you're saying, oh, of course. You're speaking symbolically. Now, of course, I would never say that because, you know, I'm, I'm not Jesus. But Jesus saying that is obviously before them speaking symbolically to them of something that he wants them to do symbolically going forward in order to remember his sacrifice that's going to take place the next day. So this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Again, his blood is in his body at this point. Do this, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You proclaim uh, not only your faith and trust in his death, but the power and effectiveness of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. So you are properly remembering him by taking this symbol, and there is power in communion in the Lord's Supper when we do that as believers. There is power for us personally. There is a, a, a work that happens in our lives uh, each time we do this, and there is a powerful proclamation, not just for us, but for anyone who witnesses that. This has been a, a great debate through uh, through the centuries in the church. Is this, is the Lord's table literal or is it symbolic? Those are essentially the two paths. Now there are different ways that you can go on those paths, but those are essentially the two paths that you can go. But you would be surprised to know that there are many Protestants who go along with Catholics um, in the literal understanding of this. In other words, they believe that when you take communion, that you are literally receiving the body and the blood of Christ. This is not what the Bible is saying. And I'll tell you why we need to know this in a second. But first of all, Catholics believe that that when there is an invocation, when there is a blessing over the, <clears throat> the bread and the wine, that it literally transforms into the body and the blood of Jesus. That is Catholic doctrine. And that, so that each time, you know, they celebrate what they call the Eucharist, that, that, there, uh, that there is a salvation aspect to that. That they are, in a sense, crucifying Christ once again. And so, uh, not just wrong, but blasphemous. And at its core, wicked. And that is the, cent the center of the Catholic Mass. That, that is the heart of the Catholic Mass, is that. Now, if you're familiar, so the Catholic Church begins... The origins of the Catholic Church go back to the time of Constantine, around 325 A.D. You come up to 1517 A.D., and that's the time of Luther, Martin Luther. And that is the beginning um, of what is known as the Reformation. Luther was a priest, and he, I won't get into the Reformation in detail, but, but he broke away from Catholicism and ultimately was the, the founder of um, Lutheranism and the beginning of the Reformation and uh, all of the other Protestant uh, denomination and denominations and reformers and, and, and people. But, but so uh, it's easy to understand why Lutheranism then is, is more similar to Catholicism than it isn't, particularly in this regard when it comes to um, when it comes to, to the Lord's Supper. 
So they are also in the literal camp, Lutherans are. And what Lutherans would say is, yes, it is the body and blood literally of Christ, but it is also bread, it's, it's also bread and wine at the same time. It's both. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, I mean, is it a distinction? Um, I'll leave that to other people to argue. But that's the Lutheran view. It's, it's a Catholic light view. Not, and I don't, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm just trying to, to be descriptive there. It's, it's, so that's the difference. So along come some of the other reformers like John Calvin. And you would be surprised to know that Reformed theology, which Calvinism is a subset of Reformed theology, also believes that, it, that communion is literally the body and blood of Christ. But Again, they make a distinction that I'm not so sure there's a distinction. They say, but in a spiritual sense. They say, so we believe it's literally the body and blood of Christ, um, but in a spiritual sense. So they're just a little bit further along than, than Luther was. The difference between what we believe and what we, what we see the Scripture, I believe, saying here very clearly is, then there is everybody else who says, it's a symbol, guys. It's a symbol. They're, the body and the blood of Jesus, literally, whether you say, you know, physically or spiritually, but literally does not have to be and should not be in communion. It's a symbol. Because our need is not literally to consume, and that's Jesus' point here. We don't need to somehow literally consume or even spiritually consume the body and blood of Jesus symbolically we need to. We need to believe in his death. We need to believe in his resurrection. We need to place our faith and trust in him. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Here's the problem. So many, and, and you see this, um, it tends to be um, those that, that see themselves as intellectuals. And again, that's not a um, meant to be uh, an attack, more of an observation. But those that tend to drift or lean toward intellectualism and things of that nature and, and, and mysticism and, 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 and who seem to be pursuing something, you know, on this kind of deep spiritual, I hate to use that term because I don't think that it's authentic always, but but they would describe themselves on, you know, some sort of greater spiritual quest, I think, than a lot of people tend to gravitate toward these kinds of ideas. And it's interesting to me how ironic it is because it is sensual. It is earthly. It is at its core physical. And going away from the very point that Jesus was making. So in their attempt to become deeper spiritually, they actually in their intellectualism and in the wisdom of the world, which as the scripture says is, is not from above, but is earthly and essential and demonic, they gravitate toward the physical. And you've got to be very, very careful in your pursuit of spirituality and, and, and a deep relationship with God that you don't actually come full circle right back to the flesh because so many people are doing that. I, it's interesting to me, I was listening to, there was a very well-known uh, preacher and I had never heard him preach. So I decided to watch uh, one of his messages recently. The title of it intrigued me uh, of the message and the passage that he was preaching, going to be preaching from. So, uh, I decided to watch that and, and was very curious. And I never heard him preach before. And, and, and so, you know, a lot of observations, you know, from that, things that struck me from that. But, but one thing that, that struck me was that he said that he was now really arriving, or I think he probably has uh, arrived well before that point, but at this place where, where he believes in this idea of this, the, literally the body and blood of Christ in, in the Lord's Supper. 
And I read uh, actually another quote from him separately from that as, as uh, I wasn't aware that he um, was kind of on that path, but I probably should have been understanding his uh, background in Reformed theology and so forth. But, um, but it was interesting to me as I looked at that that he made another quote and he said that, and this is, this is interesting, he said that the center of our worship is not one man in a pulpit, but is the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. So on the level, on one level, you might say, oh yeah, sure, you know. Uh, but that's a subtle diminishing of the word of God in favor of a of an unbiblical understanding of the Lord's table. And when you diminish the teaching of the Word of God, you're going to arrive at unbiblical understandings, by the way. No one is suggesting that all of this, um, well, I shouldn't say no one, maybe there are people out there, uh, no one in here, no one uh, of the people that... Um, that I admire and uh, consider faithful in the ministry is suggesting that uh, that worship centers around a teacher or a pulpit. We, um, at least speaking for myself, do everything that we can to diminish um, people. Not you, but but the messengers. We, we're not trying to, you know, I don't think any of us really want to build ourselves up and be the center of attention or anything like that. But what we do want to be the center of attention is God and His Word. Because God, as Alan Huth, when he was here a couple weeks ago, pointed out, God has magnified, Psalm 138, verse 2, His Word above His name. So my suggestion is be very, very careful when you diminish the teaching of the Word of God, particularly for something that you can't support in Scripture. And the second thing that I would say is Jesus does not need to physically be in, nor should He be scripturally, in communion for there to be power in the Lord's table. I don't get power from the Lord's table through some spiritual or literal eating of the body of Christ. I get it symbolically by understanding what that means. What it's reminding me of and causing me to remember. And the repentance that it brings about in my heart and the cleansing that God does in the empowering through a fresh infilling of His Spirit and the proclamation of that sacrifice. That's where the power comes in and that's what is central to worship. So it's very important that we understand these because guess what? The Scripture tells us in the last days there's going to be a great falling away and you're going to see a lot of these people who have written these books and who have had a you know, tremendous platform and they're going to be saying some weird stuff. And people are going to go after them lacking discernment. I can tell you that today um, one of my greatest concerns as a pastor is the lack of discernment among people who claim to be Christians. What do I mean by that? Things that should be obvious to them are not. And the reason that they're not is because they haven't been taught the Word of God. Now you can say, well, that's the church's fault, or you can say that I think it's a little bit of a combination of both, a lack of teaching and a lack of appetite and people pursuing ministries uh, that don't teach the Word of God because, as the Scripture says, they have itching ears and so they'll heap up for themselves teachers. So this is the condition that we're in. The cause is probably a little bit on both sides. But you see people just with a complete lack of discernment. I saw another video the other day, actually, also caught my attention. Apparently there's a, a show, uh, I haven't seen it before, I don't recommend it, I don't encourage you to go check it out. Um, in fact, I'm not even going to tell you the title of it, um, but it is a, a show, um, 
about, I, I don't even really know exactly what it's about. I just know that there's kind of a guy in, in the show, and, I, and he's kind of a, I, I don't say superhero, but, you know, he's, he's, well, judging by looking at him, he's a pretty big buff guy. And so I imagine, you know, he uh, does justice or whatever, you know. And, and apparently it's a TV show. I think it's had, it, uh, what I read was one, one season. Anyway, there's all kinds of, it's a, uh, it's a show that's, you know, has nudity and violence and language and all kinds. It's, it's like most of the shows today, I think, you know. And the guy that's the main character supposedly is a Christian. So the video I saw of him was where it said something like, uh, some people ask me how I can be a Christian and play so-and-so, the the, the title character. So I thought, oh, this is interesting. You know, first of all, I didn't know about the show before, so after I started watching that, I had to pause look up the show, okay, what is the content of this show exactly? And you can go on IMDB or Plugged In or any of these and they'll tell you, you know, okay, well, there's, these are the, this is the language, this is the spiritual content, um, this is the violence and the sexual content. You can, you, without going and watching the show, you can get a rundown of any show or any movie on the internet and I encourage you to do that before you watch. And don't watch those shows that, don't put that junk in your mind. So he goes on and on and on about, you know, why it's okay he can play this character because, you know, it's all about... What they do is they redefine sin as tension. You see, there's, we, have, we create this tension. And, you know, so sexual immorality, profanity, violence, all of that isn't sin, it's tension. And that's okay, God likes tension. In fact, he went, goes back to Genesis abnormally in this video and talks about you know well in the beginning everything was chaos so god likes tension and so that's not the concerning part then i go down to the comments below the video and there's like one guy that says nah and there's like thirty thousand people saying yes oh yeah this is the greatest thing ever and blah 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 you're going on and i'm like it hit me again where is the discernment? How are there all of these people that don't know? No, that's not right. Whatever things are noble, whatever things are good, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, meditate on these things, the scripture says. I will put no wicked thing before my eyes, the scripture says. I won't be double-tongued. I won't with one part of my tongue worship God and the other part use profanity. The Bible is so, these things are, this is like 101. You know this. I'm not, everything I'm telling you, you know. But the question is, how doesn't everybody know them? How, how is there no discernment? So this is where we are, and this is my encouragement to you, is that in the days we live, there are gonna be people, even people who, you know, they've written books. They've preached hundreds, if not thousands, of sermons. They've pastored large churches. They've, you know, been all over the internet. They have tremendous following. And yet, you're going to hear things from some of them that are not right. And you're going to discover that some of them are not believers. And you're going to discover that many people who are in many of these churches have no discernment. And worse than that, the Father never drew them. They were never drawn by the Father. And so my encouragement to you is have discernment. My encouragement to you is study to show yourself approved, as the Scripture says. My encouragement to you is dig into the Word of God and understand these things and why they matter and why your ideas matter. And then cling to those right ideas. Because Jesus tells us here, the importance of that, that it, is, that it is God who is teaching us. In verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Verse 60, therefore, so as you can imagine, everybody wasn't really thrilled about what Jesus said. And 
Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And so, earlier in this previous section, you're dealing with the crowd. But now you get to disciples. So there was a crowd, which we saw above in this section and the previous section. Then there was a larger group of disciples, not the 12. That's who's in view here now, beginning in verse 60. And then there was the 12. So you had, a, you had people that didn't follow Jesus at all. You had a crowd that was kind of interested in him. Then you had a larger group of disciples. Then you had the 12. And so this group of disciples, not, not the 12, but not the crowd either, they're, they're confused. They don't understand. And when Jesus in himself uh, knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? So it says that they were murmuring also. They complained. It's the, the, the same word as back in verse 41. They were murmuring also, just like, just like the crowd. And Jesus asked them an, an important question. Do my words offend you? And you know, there are people that are offended by the words of Jesus. In other words, they come in here and if we, if we proclaim what Jesus actually said, they're going to be offended. That's okay. My job is not to make sure that people aren't offended. I don't want them to be un- offended unnecessarily. In other words, I don't want to do something just in myself, in my flesh, that causes them to be offended because of me. But I do want to proclaim accurately what Jesus said and what the Word of God said. And if they're offended by that, then they're offended by that. But if I water that down so as to not offend them, then I sin and I fail everyone. And so Jesus realized that there are going to be people that are going to be offended by the truth. And so he asked him, he says, hey, you know, are you, are you, does this offend you? Verse 62, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? So if they're offended by the fact that he said that he came down, what, what if they saw him go back up? You know, up into heaven and after his death and resurrection, if they, if they couldn't grasp how he came and how he spoke of believing in his death and uh, how they would believe uh, in his life and, uh, you know, or how they should believe in his life and his resurrection, you know, how would any of that be possible if they, if they couldn't grasp that he came first? How, uh, how could they grasp any of the other things? Verse 63, he said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So he reminds them, look, everything I'm talking about is spiritual. Eating my flesh and drinking my blood, that I'm the bread of life. And it, this is all spiritual and it's all for a reason. It's all about eternal life. And there's no prophet, Jesus is in, saying, in the, in the flesh. And, and, and he wasn't there to make their lives better and talk about making their lives better. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe and who would betray him. So Jesus knew from the beginning um, who was and who wasn't a believer. This is interesting because there were many in the crowd that didn't believe. Then this larger group of disciples, there were many of them who didn't believe. But even in the 12, there was one who didn't believe. Every single one of these groups had at least someone who didn't believe. And of course, he's talking about Judas who would betray him. And so verse 65, he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. That verse 65 is really interesting because he talked about the Father drawing him, but now he talks about those who come to him. And so we see kind of how this works a little bit better together. And what we discover is, is that the Father draws and that people respond, but no one can actually do that unless it's the Father doing first, initiating uh, that work in him. 
And so uh, it really, uh, it's fascinating when we look at the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Verse 66, as we said, then many of the people uh, from that time uh, went back. They didn't walk with him anymore after all of this. And so um, we discover that Jesus, as always, was never really trying to please people. He was not trying to build a crowd or a following. Um, you know, it wasn't interesting. He, 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 it's interesting. He, he wasn't going, well, you know, I started with a couple of guys, and then before you knew it, we had 12. And then a- after that, I had uh, even more followers. And Jesus is now looking, now look today, look at me now. I have millions of followers. You know, I've gone viral. Jesus isn't, wasn't looking for that. He wasn't trying to draw a crowd. He was trying to draw people in faith to the Father. And here, actually, I would suggest that Jesus is thinning the ranks to only true believers. And as a result, many who weren't following for the right reasons and didn't truly believe in him, they walked away. And there's going to come a time where that happens again. There's been kind of a lot of buildup, you might say, in churches, not the church, but in churches today of people who don't truly believe. And we, as we progress in the last days, if if the Lord comes soon, there is going to be a great falling away, the Scripture says, and there's going to be a a cleaning out of those who believe and those who do not, as I mentioned. Verse 67, and Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? So now he turns to, you know, he's gone from the crowd to the larger group of disciples. He turns to the disciples and challenges them. And I believe he challenges us tonight as well. The same question. Do you also want to go away? Are you going to be offended at, at my words? And choose something else, something more intellectual, something that, that makes you feel a different way. And are you going to walk away? Verse 68, Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else, he says, can we find eternal life but in you and in your words? We have nowhere else to go. But it isn't just that we have nowhere else to turn. It's not that we don't have any alternatives, but also that being with Jesus is so good. I love what it says in Psalm uh, 73, verse 25. It says this. This is a Psalm of Asaph. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside you. I love that. There is nowhere else, as Peter says, there's nowhere else for us to turn. Whom am I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. It's not just that there is not a viable alternative. But that there is also that there's nothing else that we desire as believers. Nothing else but Jesus. And that's the way that the disciples felt. You, eternal life is in you. And they didn't want to follow anybody else. They didn't want to be with anybody else. There was no one like Jesus. Verse 69, also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So this, is, uh, this was a critical time in the ministry of Jesus. And true believers needed to be separated from unbelievers and from make-believers. And Jesus is, this is the process here where he's going about doing that. But I would say to you that, uh, I think it's no mystery, I've said it a couple of times, but this is a critical time in the church today as well. 
as God is testing hearts. He's testing the hearts and motives of each person. And, and I pray that the reality in our lives, that it will be that we can turn nowhere else. That there is nowhere else we want to turn but to Jesus. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for, for your word here this evening. And Lord, it's not about men, it's not about pulpits, it's about you. It's about your word, and faith comes by hearing, as you say in your word, and hearing by the word of God. And so, Lord, we, we have come to you tonight, and we do come to you tonight. And we pray that as we come, Lord, that you would reveal those things that are there in your word waiting for us, that we might walk in the truth, not in things that appeal to our itching ears, that make us feel more spiritual or mystical or whatever, but in the simple truth that has power. That we would walk in faithfulness, that we would walk in holiness. That we would find that as we respond to you, you've drawn us. And having turned to you, that you worked in us, that you worked through your word. That you gave us that gift of faith. As we're praying tonight, if you've come, the question is, has, has the Father drawn you? Well, now that's up to you. Will you turn to Him? Will you receive the sacrifice of His Son on the cross for your sins? That you may know that your sins are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Removed from you, as the scripture says, as far as the east is from the west. And that you walk in the newness of life. Born again, as Jesus said. Having repented of your sin and received his sacrifice for yourself. If you haven't done that, I want to pray with you tonight to do exactly that. And I want you to know that as you do, that God hears your prayer. That Christ will come in and take up residence in you. That you will become the temple of the Holy Spirit. That you will be transformed from the old man to the new man. That you will have power in the Spirit of God to walk with Him and to serve Him. And that you'll be with Him in heaven and not apart from Him in hell in eternity. You can know these things. God wants you to know these things. But if you haven't placed your faith and trust in Christ, you don't have these things. You need Him tonight. If you'd like to join me in prayer this evening, I'd like to pray with you right now. I ask this of you. If you want to pray tonight that you just raise your hand, God will see you in your heart. More importantly, He will hear your prayer. But you need to, to take that step. If you haven't, you need to take that step tonight. So you slip up your hand if you'd like to pray as we close, and we'll pray together. Thank you, Lord. Ah, bless your people, Lord. And Lord, we thank you so much. We have so much in you. Our cups truly run over in you. Let us never forget that. And let us never forget your sacrifice for us, Lord Jesus. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Father, amen.